catch up, and you're like, huh? My goal is that it, you'd be able to follow along. You'd be able to keep up. But it's going to get hard because today I'm going to tell you who the beast is that people have been predicting for years. 666? I'm going to name him for you today. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so... We'll get there. We'll get there. That'll be a little bit of something for you to hang on to. Real quick, to bring you up to speed, the book of Revelation, I believe, and there's lots of ways people read this. They interpret it differently. They're good, godly people. We'll be in heaven one day together. We'll find out who is right. And as I've been saying, if I'm right, (laughs) you've spent eternity dealing with me. So you better hope you're right. But anyway, Revelation is written in seven sections, and seven in the book of Revelation is the perfect number. And so we see these seven sections that recapitulate the same story over and over and over again. All recapitulation means is it tells you something, then it goes back and tells it to you again, and it goes back and tells it to you again, and each time it gets from a different angle, different vantage point, and a little bit more intense. And so really what we see is there are seven scenes that reveal to us the struggle of this life, the triumph of Christ, the judgment against God's enemies, and the eternal life of those who love God. That's basically Revelation in a nutshell. And today as we get into this section, I believe it's section four, I didn't count them, we're going to see the behind the scenes battle of everyday life. So before I get to this, while John is writing to a real group of people dealing with real struggles, the application of today's message is very wide reaching. If anybody here is experiencing tension in your marriage and you just can't seem to figure it out, this chapter goes to that. If you are experiencing unbelievable strife and turmoil in your small group, life group here at Kingsway, this section gets to that. If you, in your own uh, workplace, you're like, why am I constantly battling these people? This section gets to that. Why is ISIS going on in the world today? This section gets to that. Why does it seem like every time there's a presidential nomination in America, people that I normally love and enjoy being with, we all start fighting and arguing? This section gets to that. So without any further ado, let's open up to Revelation chapter 12, and there's going to be, because I'm trying to cover essentially three chapters in a very complex book, I'm going to have to paint with a wide swath. I'm going to miss things that you really want me to dig into. And here's what I could say. There are things in this text that are really obvious. Why? Because they tell us. There are other things in this text that are pretty easy to figure out because we, if we know our Bible, they're, they're clear to us. And there are other things in this text that we're going to take our best guess at and then let it all lay in Jesus' lap. So, Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, here we go. Then I witnessed in heaven, John writes, an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. And oh my goodness, is this not weird? That's revelation for you. It's written in what we call apocalyptic literature. And what that means is it's highly metaphoric language, but it's making a very profound point. Let me just point out some of these things. And again, if I had time to go deeper, I would. First of all, We know that the dragon here represents Satan. How do I know? Because verse 9 tells us, we'll look at it in a minute, but if you'll trust me to just tell you what it's about to tell us, the red dragon is Satan. Here's what that means for everybody in here. Though Halloween just passed, there is a real being named Satan. And while you don't really ever see him, you see the effects of him every single day. 
He's called a serpent here. It's called dragon because all the way back in Genesis, Adam and Eve were deceived by a serpent, and, and, and John's playing on that same imagery. Also, by the way, it's highly possible, it's completely possible that Adam and Eve were actually uh, tricked by a dragon, but that's a whole other conversation for another day. Here we see Satan has, you know, heads and crowns and horns. Don't literally picture Satan as a red dragon with horns and, and crowns and, and all these kinds of things, heads. It's just like when we get to Halloween, everybody dresses, you know, kind of like a Satan. He's got the red pointy tail and the ears. Like, that is not what Satan really looks like. And Satan is, is, is probably a, an extremely beautiful creature made by God for a specific purpose. And what we're about to see throughout this text is this. Satan is ticked. Why is he ticked? It's going to come clear. I'm just going to get ahead of it for a minute here. Because he's no longer allowed in heaven. And he's been thrown down to the earth. And he is enraged about it because he knows that his time is short. He knows that there's a final battle coming whereby he will be crushed and sent into what the Bible calls the abyss, the place prepared for Satan and his demons, and eventually will be lined up with everybody who does not love the lamb who we know is Jesus. Hell was created for Satan. And he's angry. So he's waging war against the king of heaven. And the way that he wages war is against you and me. That's how he fights. And it looks like on this earth he's winning a lot. And the reality is he does. But that's not all that's said here. Who was the woman in this text? Well, the woman gives birth to a child, which makes you think it's probably Mary. I think Mary's too narrow. It could make you say it's Israel. I think Israel's too narrow. It could make you say it's the church in the New Testament. I think that's too narrow. I think if you just take the woman in kind of this big swath, you will see that the woman is the people of God, whether that's Old Testament Israel or the New Testament church. It's the people of God who gave birth to a little baby boy. Well, who does that sound like? Jesus. And at Jesus' birth, if you don't know the story, let me just tell you real quick what you'll hear in the next few weeks and we'll get into December, is when Jesus was born, Herod, who is clearly somebody being used by the red dragon, he doesn't want his power that he has on earth taken away from him, so he issues a decree to have all little boys of a certain age killed. Why? He's trying to kill the Messiah. Satan is. So it fits the story beautifully, sadly, because what does that mean? What if you're a parent of one of the little children who were killed during Herod's decree? Satan's trying to take out the Messiah. He's trying to take out the king, but he can't. Why? Because God's plans are always going to come to fruition. You can put your trust, your hope, and your faith in that. Nothing that happens on this earth by Satan is going to outplan God. That's what's crazy. As we look at this, we see Satan and his minions doing things, but it's like God is a master strategist. And everything that Satan intends for evil, God intends for good. And there's a statement of hope and trust in that, but that doesn't make it any easier if you're one of the parents whose babies were killed because Satan's trying to kill the Messiah, does it? Any easier today than it does to simply trust that Jesus is Lord and he's reigning as king in heaven and eternally he will reign with all of us who love him one day. However, right now when my marriage falls apart, right now when I'm fighting with somebody I love, and right now when my son goes off to war and gets killed by, I, by Iraq or Afghanistan or anybody else, it doesn't make it any easier, does it? It still hurts. Jump down here. Revelation 12, verse 5. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. If you don't know your Bible, it's okay. I believe, I didn't write this down. I believe it's Psalm 2, but this is a direct quote from the Psalms about Jesus. 
So this woman, it's clear as day now, she gave birth to Jesus. And her child, Jesus, was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. That was Jesus. Don't think just about baby Jesus now. Think about the entire life and ministry of Jesus wrapped up in basically one verse. Verse 6, and the woman, the people of God, fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, the 1,260 days is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7. And I don't have time to go real deep into Daniel 7. I know some of you drives you nuts, but try to stay with me really high above the trees so we can look down over the whole forest here. In 1,260 days, also in Revelation called 42 months, also in Revelation called three and a half years, also in Revelation called time, times, and half a time. And let me try to explain that one for a second. Time, one year, times, two years because it's plural, and a half a time, a half a year. Are you with me? So all of these things equal the same, and I had to grab a calculator to make sure I'm right because I don't have math skills. This is all coming from this passage here. For time's sake, I'm going to read a portion of it. I'm not even going to read all of that. We're going to start at Daniel 7, verse 25. And while you're going there, let me just tell you Daniel 7's vision. In Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision of these coming kingdoms, and he nails it. In fact, liberal scholars say there's no way Daniel could have done that. Nobody could have predicted the future like that. But one thing we know about God is he tells us this, one way you'll know that he's God above all these false little G gods is the fact that he can let you know the end from the beginning. He can predict everything that's about to come and he does it with precision and accuracy. And Daniel writes about these kingdoms and he writes about the, the, Pers the Babylonians and the Persians and the, and the uh, Grecians and Alexander the Great and then he writes about Rome and he nails it. And in Daniel 7 here where we're about to read, he's describing Rome and how intense Rome is gonna be. Now remember, Daniel, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. John, after the resurrection of Jesus, John is looking back at Daniel 7 and saying, look, this thing that Daniel described is happening right here among us. It is going on around us. That's what the book of Revelation is written to these people who are living in this terrifying image that Daniel saw. And he's pulling the imagery of Daniel 7 throughout chapter 12 and 13, and he's using it. If you go and read it, you'll see he grabs some of these same animals described, and he's saying, look, here's Rome. He's all of them. It's horrible. It's bad. It's a bad deal. And you all are suffering underneath Rome's rule in reign. But notice now in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, describing the ruler of Rome. He will defy the Most High. Hmm, maybe this is somebody even bigger than just Rome. He will defy the Most High and oppress the holy people of the Most High. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws, and they will be placed under his control for a time, times, and half a time. Now stop there. What John is doing, and I realize, look, this flies in the face of some of the, the way some of you were taught Revelation. And when we get to heaven, if I'm wrong and you're right, it doesn't matter. Jesus will come back. But the way that I read, the way I read this is what John is doing. Is he's grabbing this three and a half year time span. He uses it in different ways, 42 months, 1260 days, blah, blah, blah. He uses all those in Revelation to describe the intense persecution and trials that those who love God are going to face on this earth. Whether it's earthquakes and famines, or whether it's uh, backbiting and devouring among believers, or whether it's sin ruining relationships, or whether it's real arrest, imprisonment, beheading, and so on. All of these are attacks being waged against earth and the people of earth and the people of God specifically, and the question for all of us is, what do we do with it? Look at what happens next, though. I love this statement of promise, even in Daniel 20, or 7, 26. Tell me, 
tell me, how does this stand up to Revelation? But then the court, you can hear heavenly court, will pass judgment. And all of his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. The woman, you could read. His kingdom, this is the Messiah, will last forever and all rulers will serve and obey him. You see what even Daniel's trying to do through his imagery in this Old Testament prophecy is he's trying to say, hang on, the Messiah's coming, trust him. It looks like everything's out of control and the dragon, the beast, the ruler of the things, the, the, the nations of the world, it looks like he has control, but he doesn't. It looks like he has power, but he doesn't. It looks like he's, you know, running things, but he isn't. Pick back up now. Revelation 12, verse 8. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. The great dragon, here it is, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. By the way, the word Satan in Hebrew is the word hasatan. It literally means the adversary. I'll get to that in a second. He is the one deceiving the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. And this is where everybody in the room ought to go, ah, that's where I live. <laughs> you know, it's like you go on the internet and you look up, you know, where certain criminals are in your neighborhood. You go, wait a minute. I didn't know that Jack the Ripper was my next-door neighbor. I just thought he was a guy who kept inviting us over for dinner on Friday the 13th. Okay. Here's the point. As you're reading this text, you go, wait a minute. Satan's been kicked out of heaven. If we get to the end of Revelation, there's a place prepared for him, but he's not in that place yet. Where is he? He's here, and he's ticked. Let me connect a dot real quick. If you were here last week, if you weren't, that's okay. I just can't cover it as deeply as maybe I did last week. There's a guy named Job in the Old Testament, and Job is blessed by God, and Satan goes up into heaven, and he's walking around on the heavenly court, and God and Job start this conversation where Job says, or God, sorry, Satan says to God about Job, if you remove your blessing from Job, he'll curse you your face, and God says, no, he won't. Okay, so this story has always baffled me, so apparently Satan is allowed in the heavenly throne room. And we're told throughout Revelation, really other parts of the Bible as well, Satan is our accuser, and day and night he accuses us. So his role in heaven is to go, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He says he loves you, but look at his life. And she says she means it, but look, she failed again. They're all a bunch of liars and hypocrites, God. But not anymore. Because he's not allowed into the heavenly courthouse. If you remember, and I think it's Luke chapters 8 through 12, Jesus gathers together these disciples and he pairs them up. We talked a little bit about this last week with the witness in chapter 11. And he sends them out to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And as these witnesses go out, they come back, these disciples. And you know what they say? Jesus, it's amazing. We healed people just like you did. We actually carried out the kingdom you're building here on this earth just like you did. And and when we cast out demons, they listened to us. And did Jesus' statement, do you remember? I saw Satan fall from heaven. Understand what John is saying here. At what we might call, uh, for lack of a better phrase, the Christ event. So don't, you know, everybody debates. So which is more important, Jesus' birth or his death or his resurrection? Like, really? They're one event. 
They're not separate events. They may have happened chronologically in time, but they're one event. If Jesus doesn't get born, he doesn't die. If he doesn't die, he doesn't get raised. You can't have one without the other. It's like love and marriage. Anyway, so Jesus, he comes, and what he's doing here is he's setting up an earthly kingdom. Do you see this? To combat the enemy who has an earthly kingdom. And Satan's been cast down, and Jesus says, my kingdom wins, my kingdom reigns, my people will rule, my people defeat the enemy. Those who love me and follow me, they're going to win this battle. But the enemy's ticked. That's why Peter writes, Satan is like a roaring lion, prowling all over the earth, just looking for a weak one to devour so anywhere we find strife, anywhere we find rebellion, anywhere we find discord and disunity and factions and envy and greed and lusts of the flesh, we know that Satan is starting a war and he's seeking anybody he can lead down a path. And what I would say to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, is know the enemy's schemes. Become aware of them. And do not fall into the traps. And it's really easy, by the way, to point a finger at everybody else and say, well, I think you're living, I think you're following Satan and not Jesus. You know what? These texts are never intended for us to judge others. They're intended for us to look in the mirror and say, what about me? I've got to do a little bit of skipping here for time's sake, but I highly recommend you read verses 10 through 12 later. Jump down to verse 13 with me. When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. Who's the woman? The people of God. Who did what? Gave birth to the male child. Jump down to verse 17. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children. Who are her children? All who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Verse 18, then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea. I know if you weren't here last week, this is one of those things I'll just tell you real quick. If you go back to chapter 11, we see this angel, I think it was 11, this angel comes down and he's got pillar of fire which represents the presence of God and he's got one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. But what we're about to see is this dragon comes down and he's attacking the land and the sea. And the reason we're told this in 11 before we're told this in 13 is simply that this, because God is sovereign even when it looks like he has no control. Even when it looks like, God, what are you doing? Why aren't you answering my prayers? Why are you doing this? God, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. You need to know and you need to trust God is in control. He's literally got the whole world in his hands. But the devil here, what we're about to see, is he is all about trying to distract you from the real story. All of 13 and, and all of 14, I guess you could say 13, 12, is what we call a parody. If you don't know what a parody is, a parody is like an, I don't, an intelligent form of irony. And... Um, if you remember, I don't know if you remember, the Bush-Gore elections from, I don't know, whatever, like 10 years ago, whatever, it was 2004. Do you guys remember that? And I'm not a Saturday Night Live fan, so please don't judge my moral character. I used to be at one point, but Saturday Night Live did a series of hilarious parodies about Bush and Gore and the whole thing going on and the hanging chads and, and Bush couldn't pronounce any world leader's name and, and Gore kept talking about a lockbox. Do you remember that? Okay, I, I can't tell you to go watch it, but it was hilarious. But anyway... 
I really can't tell. I wouldn't recommend anything Saturday Night Live does. But here's the point. Throughout chapter 13, parody is all over the place. I'm going to cover four of them because it's a good biblical number. I could easily take the number to seven or probably beyond, but just to give you an idea. So parody is a comparison of two things, and the comparison is a cheap imitation of the real thing. So in Revelation 13, what you're going to see is there's a dragon, a first beast, and a second beast, and it's intended to parody the real trinity in heaven, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's also a beast the first beast, he's empowered by the dragon to rule with authority. It's a parody of God the Father and Jesus the Son. There's a beast, he has a mortal wound, and he comes back to life. It's a parody of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Let me also just say on that one there, number three, the Greek in that particular verse, which I don't think I have time to read, that particular verse, the Greek is almost identical to the language described, used to describe Jesus' death. It talks about being slain. And so it's, just, it's, it's not an accident. John's doing this on purpose. And then number four, he is worshipped with the exact same words that are ascribed to God and his Christ in the Bible. If you read Revelation 13, 4, you'll see that for yourself there. What is going on? John is telling us that our enemy is really good at deception, but it's a cheap imitation of the real thing. And our enemy does a very good job of leading you down a path of making you think he can give you pleasure that's lasting, but he can't. This is why you keep spending your money and wasting your life on things that can't fulfill you. And when you're really honest, nobody else is around. It's just you in the mirror. And you say to yourself, man, I thought that would be more rewarding and more fulfilling than it was. Why is it I talk to so many men today when they tell me about their struggle with pornography and how it led them deep, deep, deep into adultery? And they all start with the same story. Man, it just started with uh, girls in bikinis. And it just progressed quickly. And at first, the things I saw, they appalled me. And then all of a sudden, they started to attract me. Your enemy knows not to go to the most grotesque thing right away. I'll just slowly lead you there. And at each step of the way, you'll think it has fulfillment and joy and pleasure, but it's not lasting because the next thing you know, that thing that once fulfilled you and brought you joy, it doesn't anymore. And you'll just keep traveling down this path until you are totally in the dark longing for the light. And you don't need to wonder, yeah, part of it's you and part of it isn't. You have an enemy who wants to destroy you and he's really patient and he's been studying humans for thousands of years. We don't even know exactly how many thousands. We just know that he's been studying us and he knows us probably better than we know ourselves. But that's not the end of the story either. Keep reading. Revelation 13 verse 5. Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over, count them, every tribe, people, language, and nation. He had complete authority from the dragon over the earth and all people who belonged to this world, worshipped the beast. They are the ones whose names, check this out, were not written in the book of life. That belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. This sounds, this whole chunk here, sounds like a terrible, terrible story until you get to that verse. 
because you have this beast and he's ruling on behalf of the dragon. And so this beast, he's physical, he's real, but he's being moved and motivated by the dragon, manipulated by the dragon. He's actually working for the dragon and you don't really know it except for a lot of people are serving him. In fact, all the people of this world are serving him, but there's a group of people not of this world and they're not serving him and their names have been written in the book of life. Who? was authored by the land that was slaughtered before the world began. And see, if you're a Christian, you've been hearing that little statement for a long time, and I don't want you to miss it. See, John, same guy wrote this book, in chapter one of John tells us, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And everything that has ever been made was made by the word. We know the word is Jesus. The same thing here, the lamb is Jesus. So now put these pieces together like a puzzle. And if you read it, what it's saying is Jesus who formed the stars in distant places we've never seen and put the planets in their place and then worked his way to the earth separating water and land and doing all these things that he did on earth and then he made men and women and he made them in God's own image. Jesus did this and while he's doing this, he's saying, one day I'm going to die for you. One day I'm going to lay down my whole life for you. What kind of an all-powerful creator, while he's creating, says, you're going to betray me, you're going to deny me, you're going to even hate me at one point, but I will still love you and care for you and lead you, and I've already put your names in my book. This is the beauty of Romans 8, that passage that Christians have been fighting about for centuries now. The beauty of it is that before time began, God looked into the future and he made a promise, everybody who loves me, I am going to conform them into the likeness of my son. See, right now, you're, you're a piece of art. God is crafting you, he's shaping you, he's forming you, and he's good to you, even though it may not look like it. Even though you don't understand what he's up to. And the enemy wants to try to throw mud and dirt and junk on the art piece. And he wants to make it look like it's ugly or that it's fallen or that it's disformed or whatever. But what we know is, no, we are in the hands of the master potter. And at every step, he's using everything for our glory. But if you're really using a clay analogy, as the Bible often used to describe us, we're clay in the potter's hands. You know the way the clay gets shaped? It's through conflict. It's through strife. It's through persecution. It's through trial. It's through suffering. And while Satan thinks he's destroying you, God is saying, no, see, I'm using you, Satan. You're just a pawn to shape my people into the likeness of my son. As you're going through life's struggles, you need to be asking this question, God, what are you doing and why are you doing it? What are you trying to reveal to me and show me? And if nothing else, if nothing else, the answer is to hang on and trust God. That's the message of Revelation. Let's keep going. Ask some questions. Who is the beast? It's a fantastic question. Lots of things have been suggested. Here's where I land. You could disagree with me. That's fine. Here's where I land. The beast in John's day would definitely be Rome, the Roman government. And the Roman government hates God's people. And Satan is the machine behind the Roman government. But I don't think you could stop there. I think you could say this is true for every evil leadership, government, ruler who's ever come along. And Satan is behind all of them, including today. And before you jump to the president that you don't like, be it current one or past ones, it's certainly possible but the goal isn't to sit around and say, oh yeah, I think they're this and I think they're that. The goal is to do this. What about me? 
is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? And then to pray for those in positions of leadership. The New Testament over and over and over again says pray for your spiritual leaders. Pray for your government rulers and authorities. I mean, Paul's point in Romans is fantastic. He actually talks about submitting to their authority because they were put in place by God. That doesn't mean they're doing what they're supposed to do, but God has given them permission. He's given them some of his authority for them to lead, and they'll be held accountable. So pray for them. Pray that they would be kind and good to God's people. Pray that they will be gentle to God's people and not overbearing or persecuting to God's people. But what about the second beast? The second beast is a lot of fun, and my clock is ticking, so I need to go fast. But I do want to have some fun with the second beast. In John's day, let me just say this. In John's day, the second beast, I don't think there's any question. I believe it's the Roman imperial cult. The Roman imperial cult, if you don't remember, we covered this in Revelation 2 and 3. In John's day, uh, though Caesar, the ruler of Rome, was also worshipped as a god. Even the premier god. And so, people were forced to worship Caesar. And this is how the first beast and the second beast worked together. And if you didn't worship Caesar and you didn't follow Caesar, you could be arrested, thrown in prison. You could not even do business in many places, which fits everything you're about to read. But I would say I don't think Revelation just applies in the past. I think this applies to every religion in the world today that distracts from who God is. Every system in the world today that takes you away from loving the king, the true king, and not the false kingdoms of this world. Let's read Revelation 13, 15 to 18, and then I'm going to make my prediction. He was then permitted to give life to the statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. Let me just say it's at least interesting that we actually have reasons to believe that what would happen is there were these secret tunnels on many of the old uh, and, and temples of antiquity and priests in those temples would sneak their way through, climb up inside the statues. Now picture you're going in and you're a Roman person and you're going to worship the gods of the day and you show up and there's in, incense going up and there's smoke everywhere and there's loud music playing and it's, you're getting worked up in all this emotional state and all of a sudden somebody climbs up inside the statue and with a big voice they say something powerful and everybody's like, oh, the statue speaks. That actually happened back then and it's likely that John is writing about that. Verse 16, he required everyone Small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, six. Huh. He didn't go to seven. To be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Amen. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is... Six, 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 dun, dun, dun. I highly recommend you do not Google this later or you will spend hours either laughing or wasting your time. Here are some of the better guesses throughout time. Ronald Wilson Reagan, six, six, six. I'm just joking. I just want to see if every Republican in the room could laugh. <laughs> Apparently not. Justin Bieber, 6'6". Six, six. His favorite number is actually 6. I think there's something to that one. <laughs> Just saying. Biebs, if you're listening, I'm totally teasing, dude. I love you. Not as much as Taylor Swift, but whatever. 
According to something called gematria, you can look this up if you're interested, but guys, there are people who worship gematria. It is literally, literally used among pagans, so you've got to be very careful with this stuff. But according to something called gematria, gematria is a system where you take the alphabet and it has a numerical value. I've actually got a graphic. I'm a little off in my note order here, but go ahead and put this graphic up for me if you will. So I know this is hard to see and it's confusing, but here you have the Greek, here you have the Hebrew, and so you've got the, in the Greek, the alpha has one, and beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, and all of you are like, hey, my frat is 666. So what they would do is they literally had their letters had a numerical value attached to it. Over here, the Hebrews did the same thing. Aleph, bet, gimel, dalet, chet, vav, zayan. You didn't press that I could do that, right? So anyway, we keep going. And what you have is this, it's a number system as well as an alphabet system. This is how they would teach letters as well as numbers. And so what people have done is they've added English also to this. And they've gone, well, if you do the same thing with English letters, and there are actually Gematria websites out there, you can plug in your name and find out if you're the Antichrist. You'll be happy to know that I'm not. <laughs> in case anybody was worried. Guys, that is crazy. But what people have done is they've taken the vav or the wa from the Hebrew alphabet. Where is it on here? I got to find my letter. I should have marked it. Ah, here it is. Vav, also the wa, because if you're talking to somebody and you don't have a lot of clarity, a v and a wa sound the same. So the vav and the wa, they sound the same. So it's, guess which numerical value? Six. I don't know if you can see that. It's six. So if I have a www, what do I have? Six, six, six. So there are entire websites dedicated to telling you why the internet is the Antichrist. And I'm not 100% sure I disagree, but I think that's crazy talk. Like, I don't even, that doesn't even make sense to me. There are so many great things that happen through the internet. It's a really bad Antichrist. However, I finally have mine. You ready? So literally, while I was listening to a teaching on this text, I, I can't just listen to things. I have to keep my hands busy um, because I'm a little bit ADD. And I was literally playing a game on my phone while I was listening, and he was talking about the mark of the beast. And I was playing a game called Angry Birds Transformers. And at the exact moment where he's talking about the mark of the beast, I finished one of the levels, and this is what happened. You tell me that's not prophetic. And in case you can't see it up there in the corner. I took a picture with my phone, and now I'm convinced Angry Birds is the Antichrist. And my wife would agree because I can't put the stupid thing down. Okay. Let's be serious now. I apologize. We had our fun. Let's be serious, okay? Here's the simple answer. And guys, it's gonna, I know it's going to be like world shattering for some of you. Like, what? Are you sure? I promise you, if a chip comes out that somebody's going to insert into your forehead or your hand, you don't need to lose any sleep. Take your chip. Nobody is going to accidentally sign on to the Antichrist. Nobody. You cannot accidentally align yourself with Satan. Like, oops, I didn't know that happened. I guess I go to hell now. Too bad that I love Jesus and worshiped him all my life. Like, I didn't know. I was just trying to make a purchase. It's not going to happen. Here's how I know. Here's where I land. The reason there's three sixes is because guess what sixes are not? Seven. And guess what? Why do we say God is holy, holy, holy? Because we repeat it three times to make sure that you know with absolute certainty who's holy. God. And we say it three times because it represents heaven. And we're in the middle of parody. So six is not quite seven, but we're told to do it three times. Why? Because this is not God. 
He's saying something here. By the way, it's interesting. I don't, this one I don't want to take too far, but I do think it's interesting. If you take Jesus in the Greek, Jesus, you plug it into Gematria, it's 888. May mean nothing except for more parody. Satan is not Jesus. But look at this. I love this by G.K. Uh, G. Beale. The triple sixes are intended to be a contrast with the divine sevens throughout the book and signify incompleteness and imperfection. Let me take it a step further. Why on the forehead and the back of the hand? Not because you have to worry about a chip. This goes all the way back to what we call the Shema in the Old Testament. The Shema is the most important text to any Hebrew. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. I'm waiting for them, and they're waiting for me. I'm reading from the screen now. There you go. I think we just read that. I'm going to read it from here. Okay. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you are on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. And then verse 8, ha-ha, tie them to your hands and wear them. Where? On your forehead as reminders hebrew people actually took this literally let me show you a picture these are called phylacteries and you'll see in this first picture a guy with a box on his head and wrapped all around his arm and another box here you know what he did he went god told me to tie this around my forehead and my hand so they put scripture inside these little boxes here's another close-up just to show you how serious they are now here's what jesus says he shows up on the scene the pharisees love to do this and he rebukes them he says look you do all these actions that show you love me but your hearts are not for me and nobody got a tongue lashing like the pharisees from jesus you're the most righteous of anybody you've got all these displays of holiness but you are sold out to the wrong king Notice in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written where? On their foreheads. Revelation 22, 4. And they will see his face, and his name will be written where? On their foreheads. This is a comparison. If you literally take the word beast, therion, in Greek, and you transliterate it into Hebrew with the same letters, this is why it takes wisdom, and then you plug it into gematria, guess what it comes out as? Six, six, six. I don't think what John is saying is all that complex. I don't think you have to wait for some world leader to put together a system that you may accidentally sign on for. I think you could just know emphatically whether there is a specific antichrist that is yet to come or whether it was filled in Nero Caesar, whose name also equates to 666 if you transliterate it into Hebrew with Neon Caesar. It's possible he's the fulfillment of all those things. The whole point is simply this. Whose kingdom is your king? Are you signed on to the beast? Is it his name that is your marking? Or are you signed on with the lamb and it's his name that you're marking? Because there's a real war and a real battle going on. And if you're under one kingdom, it's bad news. If you're under the other kingdom, it's life. Except that that life comes after tremendous suffering. Revelation 13, verse 10. Look at the second half here. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. And then we get to one of the most intense 
passages in all the Bible. Revelation 14, look at verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast in his statue or who accepts his mark on their forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath. And they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur and the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever and they will have no relief day or night for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. What John is saying really isn't anything unclear though we may have questions about is there going to be a man who is technically the beast? I don't know. What I do know is whose team you're on matters. And if you sat here today and you thought, man, I just thought I was coming to church because I just wanted to check a box and go home for the day, you need to know when you go home today, you are entering into a real battle, a real one. And it's not a battle against flesh and blood. It's a battle against the spiritual powers and authorities of the unseen world. You know why you're fighting with your spouse? It's not because your spouse is difficult or you're difficult. Well, that's part of it. It's because you have an enemy who loves to steal, kill, and destroy. Do you know why you're fighting with people in your life group? It's not because of them. It's because of you and an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Do you know why every time we vote for a president, the nation divides for a season? It's because we have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Do you know why ISIS is trying to kill people? It's because we have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and he'll use many tactics and many schemes and many things he can do to get us to sign on to fighting and backbiting and devouring and arguing and immorality and lust of the flesh and greed and any number of things, but it is real. And who you align yourself with matters eternally in ways you will never see until the last day. And this imagery, guys, it is grotesque. And it's the side of God we don't want to talk about, but it is real. God is completely, completely, completely just. And when you study what happened to Jesus and how he was brutally murdered for our sin, and then we talk about some other way to heaven besides Jesus, what a horrible, horrible thing that is. Why would God brutally murder a son if there's another way? Instead, what Revelation tells us, and I always picture I Love Lucy where she's treading around making grape juice, and I know that's like totally changes the imagery, but that's exactly what's going on except for God's making grape juice, but the grape juice is the blood of his enemies, and they're the ones that he is trampling. That's the picture here, and what's being poured out is the wine of the fury of God towards sin. So everybody who loves Jesus, your name is in the Lamb's book of life and you're not there. And anybody who doesn't, picture the most powerful being ever, ever. And he is letting his enemies have it. And the believer should be saying amen. Because that means all of the pain and the rape and the murder and the child abuse and all that junk of this world will one day, will one day be brought to justice. This is why we take the gospel to the ends of the earth because I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. No, I want my worst enemy to know Jesus. I want my worst enemy to repent. I want my worst enemy to be right with God. But if you don't, and if they don't, and if I don't get right with God, 
It's the wrath of God, the fury of God that's left. Verse 12. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. That's your goal. That's your battle plan. No matter what anybody else does, you obey. If everybody else goes astray, you obey. If everybody else gets caught up in lust, you obey. If everybody else starts being greedy and you look at their life and think, man, they're having so much more fun than me, you obey. If everybody else starts gossiping and backbiting and devouring like their enemy, like our enemy, Satan, you obey. And you, as James says, control your tongue. It's hard. It's unbelievably hard. But you do it anyway. And then no matter what comes your way, you never quit on him and he will reward you. Look at verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed. For they will rest from their hard work. For their good deeds will follow them. I'm going to close with this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Friends, remember today that if you have somebody that you're having conflict with, your battle is not against them. And you can't win this battle the way the world wins it. You must win it in spiritual ways. We fight spiritual battles in spiritual ways. So get on your knees and pray for God's will to be done. In fact, let's do that right now. I'm literally going to ask for you to get on your knees. And you know the only way this is probably possible is for you to turn around and face the other way. You don't have to. If you're visiting with us, you're like, this is the weirdest thing ever. I'm never coming back to this church. <laughs> I know. I know. We try to make our services open to people far from God and, and do our best to do that. But this right now is about the body of Christ saying, we need you, God. And look, you've got a physical reason you can't kneel. That's okay, too. I'm going to do it. I'm going to face that way, and I'm just going to pray. And when I'm done praying, we're going to take communion. God, I know that everybody here just did this because I asked them, but Lord, I pray right now we would just take a moment and surrender our hearts. God, we have a very real, real battle going on around us, and it is ruining relationships with people we love and serve alongside of and desperately want to come to know you. God, we need you. Lord, the enemy is down here, and he's ticked. He is ticked, and he's trying desperately to destroy us. Oh, God, please don't let us let him do it. No, Father, I beg you. I beg you in the name of Jesus. I beg you right now to help bring healing to marriages in this room that are falling apart, broken relationships between parents and children that need you to intercede. God, in places where believers in this room are facing persecution of all types, temptations that they don't know how to fight. God, even the unbelievers in this room thinking we're a bunch of weirdos right now. God, I pray that you would stir and move in them. God, by the power of your spirit, would you help us to be a people who live for you, 
and hang on to the end no matter what comes next. May we take your mark on our forehead and on our hands and be your people engaging in this war to the very end. In Jesus' name.